Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, without further ado, Michael Hilstick. Thank you. Well, thank you, Vernon, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming um, to, uh, to join me to talk about science, big science, and how that all fits together in California history. And I also want to thank Skylight Books. I think this is the second or maybe the third time I've, uh, I've spoken here, and uh, it's great to, to have a, a great independent bookstore here in the neighborhood and to hold up uh, really a, a great industry and, um, uh, and help us all. So, um, uh, as I said, what we are going to talk about tonight is how all of these issues, science, big science, um, the invention of the cyclotron and, in fact, the development of the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb come together and fit together in California history. In fact, the center of the story that I, I tell in my book is a man we might even think of as the quintessential Californian of his time. That is, someone who came here from elsewhere. Uh, in Ernest Lawrence's case, that elsewhere was South Dakota, uh, where he was born, and he came here to make his fortune, as so many other people did. And he ended up, I think, giving even more to the state than he took uh, from it. But he built on much of what he found here in 1928, when he first arrived, a superb publicly supported university, the University of California, uh, and an enormous number of talented people who also had been drawn here by opportunity, ambition, and the state's eagerness to move to the forefront of academic science and to support them in that enterprise. So along the way, Ernest Orlando Lawrence invented the cyclotron, a device that could bombard the atomic nucleus with energies that his fellow physicists then could only dream of and actually were dreaming of and looking for ways to achieve them. He helped create the atom bomb and he masterminded the development of the hydrogen bomb. And we can talk tonight about how to think about those programs as we approach the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki a little bit more than a week from now. And finally, near the end of his life, Lawrence invented a color television tube. And those, those Trinitrons, that, those Sony Trinitrons that so many of us used to have in our homes before we replaced them with big flat screen TVs, well, those were based on Ernest Lawrence's technology, a technology he, he developed in his garage uh, and mass produced for a short time in a factory in Oakland. So, who was this man? Well, during his lifetime, Ernest Lawrence was the most famous native-born scientist in America. Newspapers and radio stations sought out his authority to speak on almost every scientific development of the day, and not a few political issues as well. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine, that, that all-purpose validation of world celebrity during that prehistoric era that we think of today as the age of print. Um, 
1939, he won the ultimate accolade in science, the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he was indirectly responsible for, for much of what we take for granted in science today, and that's his overarching legacy. Over a period of three decades, he developed a new paradigm of, of science, a new paradigm of research that still prevails in the 21st century, which we know of as big science, capital-intensive, multidisciplinary research in which teams of tens or hundreds or even thousands of scientists strive together to solve the mysteries of nature with funding from foundations, government, and industry. Big science is all around us. If you walk around the campuses of UCLA or USC, past buildings housing their physics and biology labs, you're strolling past modern manifestations of the big science paradigm. The effort to put a man on the moon uh, and to send probes into the farthest reaches of the solar system, that's big science. The Human Genome Project was a $3 billion exercise in big science, which created not only a new field of study, but new industries. Research into climate change and addressing the issues that climate change brings us can't be done without big science. The Large Hadron Collider, uh, which discovered that elusive subatomic particle, the Higgs boson, in 2012, well, that's the latest generation of the very first cyclotron Ernest Lawrence invented more than eight decades ago. His first cyclotron cost less than $100 in materials and fit in the palm of his hand. Its offspring today occupies a tunnel 17 miles in circumference, buried beneath the French and Swiss countryside, and built at a cost of $9 billion. And let's not forget the age of atomic warfare, which he helped to launch. Those negotiations just concluded over Iran's nuclear program. They're also an artifact of the science Lawrence developed possibly his most morally equivocal bequest to us in the modern world. In fact, the central theme of my book, and I hope of our conversation this evening, is that big science raises as many questions about humankind's thirst for knowledge as it answers. One of the most important aspects that we are still grappling with 70 years on is that it gave scientists and society access to forces of truly destructive power, forces that we've all found very difficult, though we hope not impossible, to corral. One of the first physicists to warn of the implications of this sea change was Lawrence's own colleague on the Manhattan Project, James Frank, an eminent German refugee physicist. Two months before the first atomic bomb detonated over Japan, Frank observed that the age was already past in which scientists could disclaim direct responsibility for the use to which mankind has put their disinterested discoveries. And the reason, he said, was that what big science had brought about was fraught with infinitely greater dangers than were all the inventions of the past put together. But we need to talk not merely about what we do with the knowledge big science brings us, but the resources we spend on that quest. Lawrence's legacy challenges us to think, challenges us to think about the best way society should spend its resources, how to weigh the monumental effort it might take to put a human being on Mars or discover the next fundamental particle against the effort to fight cancer or pay for drugs for hepatitis or multiple sclerosis for every sufferer. 
So all this factors into what makes Lawrence such an intriguing personality for us today. And, uh, and so let me pause here for a quick bit of background about the man himself. He was born in 1901 in the small town of Canton, as I said, in South Dakota, to a first-generation Norwegian-American family. So you could say he would grow up with the 20th century itself. Like so many of his friends, he was a tinker, fascinated by radio gear, and we can see the qualities that made him a success in later life, even in boyhood. Comfortable with technology and machinery, unassuming, and very bored with idleness. And that brings us to the invention that made his name. It's 1929. Lawrence has just joined the faculty of the University of California at Berkeley, which at the time had a lot of money and beautiful facilities, and now had turned to assembling the science faculty to make the most of it all. Physics itself was at a crossroads. The departing generation, the older generation, people like Ernest Rutherford and Marie Curie, had been probing the atomic nucleus with the tools that nature gave them, the emissions of alpha and beta rays from radioactive minerals like radium husbanded by the thimbleful. With those tools, that generation had figured out the structure of the atom and discovered X-rays and radioactivity. But they had done about as much as they could with nature's gifts. To go further, they recognized, science would need probes of even greater energies to delve deeper into the nucleus, and these could only be achieved through human ingenuity. It was Rutherford who threw down the challenge for the new generation, calling for an apparatus that could deliver 10 million electron volts, yet be safely accommodated in a medium-sized room. Scientists all over the world took up Rutherford's challenge, but they discovered that when you load an apparatus with 10 million volts, what happens is you blow up the apparatus. Think of, say, trying to fire a mortar shell out of a cannon with a cardboard barrel. Laboratories filled up with shards of splintered glass. A group of intrepid German researchers even strung a cable between two alpine peaks to try to capture lightning during a thunderstorm, and they did, but one of them was, blast one of them was blasted off the mountain to his death, and that ended that. Well, it would be Lawrence's destiny to begin his career at a moment when physics had hit a brick wall in its understanding of the atomic nucleus. The obstacle was galling. Physicists felt that they could peer over the wall at a misty landscape on the far side, but they couldn't get through. And one night in Berkeley, Lawrence had a brainstorm that would breach that wall and clear away the mist. What if you don't put the voltage directly onto the apparatus, but build it up on the projectile itself? If you start, say, with a proton or an ion, say it's got 100 volts for the purposes of illustration, and you give it a 100-volt jolt, now you've got a particle with 200 volts of energy. Another jolt, and it's 300, and on and on. But if you were trying to do this by projecting the projectile in a line, you would need a linear accelerator that would be almost a mile in length before you could get it up to the energies that Rutherford had been talking about. Now, now comes the second part of, Lawrence, of Lawrence's brainstorm. He knows that a charged particle crossing a magnetic field will follow a curved path. So if you apply a magnetic field, you can bend your proton into a spiral, allowing it to get repeated jolts from just a single electrode. 
And that's the essence of the cyclotron, reduced to its simplest terms. After enough revolutions, you've got a particle that can carry a million volts, 10 million volts, 100 million, even a billion, and all you have to do is aim it at a target and let it rip. The possibilities are limitless, and it all can fit into a medium-sized room, at least Lawrence's first cyclotrons did. Well, he knows he's onto something. The next day, he's seen bounding across the Berkeley campus, buttonholing friends and colleagues to declare, I'm going to be famous. And so he was. In the next decade, his invention proved itself to be a spectacularly useful machine. The teams he assembled in Berkeley discovered scores of new isotopes, including carbon-14, which we know of for its, its use in carbon dating. Other isotopes by, created by cyclotron bombardment became the foundation of the new science of nuclear medicine and new sources of new cures. And there were new elements, heavier than uranium, the so-called transuranics, which had never been seen in their natural state. Element 93 was named Neptune, and then element 94 was named after what was then the next planet in the solar system, and it was called plutonium. And every discovery opened new vistas, and Lawrence responded by designing new cyclotrons, each one bigger and more powerful and much more expensive than the last. But every university that fashioned itself to be a major research university decided it needed a cyclotron, and Lawrence sent his own associates out into the world to create what was known as the Cyclotron Republic, more cyclotrons at every university around the country. But it wasn't only his real scientific accomplishments that made him famous, but his personality, just perfect for a country striving to emerge from the shadow of European scientific traditions. He was youthful and engaging, so very different from the popular image of the mad scientist locked away alone in a, in a Gothic lab, wild-haired and foreign and a little bit strange. Ernest was sober, business-like, down-to-earth, Midwestern. The New Republic's editor, Bruce Blibben, went to visit him in Berkeley and came away enthralled by this energetic young man he described as simple and natural, easy to talk to, and as completely American as apple pie. Well, in 1939, Lawrence won the Nobel Prize for the cyclotron, and what was really notable about this award was that for the first time, the Nobel Committee honored not a discovery, but an invention. For the first time, the award recognized that the technique of scientific investigation was going to become equally important as, perhaps even more important than theory. Lawrence, meanwhile, demonstrated more than inspired scientific technique, he showed great managerial technique. He showed that when you needed to raise millions of dollars to build your machines, you had to have the genius of an entrepreneur, a ringleader, a CEO. You had to find money, ways to, to raise money from university presidents and foundation boards, industrial executives, government officials, by serving all of their goals without compromising your own, or at least without compromising them too much. For scientists, this was a new religion, and Ernest Lawrence was its prophet. Well, the 1939 Nobel Prizes were the last to be awarded until the war clouds over Europe began to dissipate four years later. And that brings us to the central event in Ernest Lawrence's career. 
the Manhattan Project would validate the big science paradigm. The atomic bomb could not have been invented by a solitary physicist using handmade equipment in his own lab. It required an investment of millions, even billions, armies of scientists and technicians by the thousands, laboratories built on an industrial scale. The Manhattan Project was the first great big science program, and it proved how powerful an approach this could be while showing how hard it might be to control. Now, many of you may know at least the outlines of the making of the atomic bomb, the effort that started with Albert Einstein's famous letter to Franklin Roosevelt in August of 1939, observing that the recent discovery of nuclear fission and uranium implied that bombs could be constructed from fissionable materials and warning that Nazi Germany might already be working on the problem. So the U.S. government swung into action, creating a high-level uranium committee to investigate the possibility, but very soon the effort ground to a halt, beset by bureaucracy and inertia. And by 1940, the two men responsible for marshalling America's scientific brainpower and resources for the coming war, Vannevar Bush of the Carnegie Institute and James Conant of Harvard, were on the verge of canceling the uranium bomb altogether. Their reasons were understandable. Physicists in America hadn't made the case that a bomb could be developed in time to help win the coming war. And if it couldn't, there was no point in spending even a dime on it because every dime would have to be diverted from a program that might win the war. But then Lawrence himself interposed his towering personal reputation in front of the hangman. Convinced that cancellation would be a short-sighted and dangerous step, he demanded a face-to-face -face meeting with Conant. And for the first time, Conant heard a physicist of undisputed stature explain not only that the bomb was feasible, but urgent. The opinion of the physics community, Lawrence explained, especially among those who had already fled Germany and Austria, was that the scientists who stayed behind in the Third Reich were perfectly capable of designing a fission bomb themselves. And if the Nazis succeed, Lawrence said, they will have in their hands the control of the world. Well, Conant listened and he was convinced. But one thing was still bothering him. If all these scientists were so sure that a bomb was feasible and necessary, he said, how come none of them had stepped forward to volunteer to build it? Ernest, he said, nothing will happen on a job like this unless we give it everything we've got. Are you ready to devote the next years of your life to getting these bombs made? And Lawrence thought for a moment and replied, well, Jim, if you tell me this is my job, I'll do it. And that saved, that statement saved the atomic bomb program at what may be the single most important meeting of the nuclear age. With Ernest Lawrence's reputation behind it, what was soon dubbed the Manhattan Project would never again be in doubt. And over the next four years, Lawrence and Big Science would play a paramount role in that program. He converted his treasured new cyclotron, which was still being built in a ravine above the Berkeley campus, into a machine that could enrich natural uranium to bomb grade by concentrating its fissionable isotope, U-235, by electromagnetic separation.
Then he designed and supervised the construction of the industrial plant to manufacture this enriched product in a rural district in Tennessee known as Oak Ridge. That plant produced every atom of the uranium for the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. He also gave one of his young associates, Glenn Seaborg, priority time on the other cyclotrons at Berkeley to isolate element 94, plutonium, which became the core of the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki. And when General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, came around looking for someone to head up the work of actually designing these bombs at the lab that would become Los Alamos, Lawrence nominated his close friend and Berkeley colleague, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and got him the job. So all that being said, now we have to confront the moral ambiguity of this work. Not only Lawrence's role, but big science's role in the war. And you know, the study of history is an exercise in looking at events through the eyes of the people who live them, but also applying the perspective of the decades and sometimes even the centuries. We judge our subjects by what they knew then through the prism of what we know today. But this exercise is especially complicated with nuclear weapons because we are so familiar with their consequences. We know the toll in lives from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, something that the builders of the bombs could only guess at, and they probably underestimated the figures. We know about the horrific disfigurements and long-term illnesses of the civilian survivors in those cities, unlike anything uh, experienced by any other survivors of warfare in history. We know the cloud that civilization has lived under for 70 years because of the decision in the 1940s to unleash the destructive capacity of the atomic nucleus. And we know that the Nazis never actually did have an atomic bomb program. The scientists who stayed behind in Germany got the physics of the bomb wrong and concluded it could never be built and never tried. But the Allies didn't learn that until after the war was over. Now, by this, I don't mean that we shouldn't judge the scientists of the Manhattan Project at all, only that we should temper our judgment by what they thought they knew. They thought they were building a weapon that could shorten the war, maybe even save lives when all was said and done, and they might be right. They thought they were in a race with a homicidal maniac bent on world domination. They were focused on the immediate present as they had to be. Germany's surrender in 1945 changed the calculus, but not the momentum of this effort. Unlike Germany, Japan was not regarded as a potential nuclear threat, and its regime was not seen as bent on world domination, maybe regional domination. But by then, the bombs were almost complete, and the impulse to use them to bring a quick end to the war in the Pacific was very strong. The final debate between the scientists and the military and political leaders of the Allies before Hiroshima was over whether dropping the bombs on the unsuspecting Japanese was truly necessary or whether a demonstration, say over an unpopulated atoll, would deliver a sufficiently grim and compelling message to the Japanese regime. The record tells us that the last holdout against dropping the bombs was Lawrence himself but that eventually he too had to acknowledge that the risk of a dud was too great and a fizzle in a demonstration he thought, they all thought, 
would be worse than no demonstration at all. And of course, historians have debated ever since then whether the bombing of Japan was truly necessary to secure surrender. But I don't think there can be any question that an overwhelming majority of those directly involved in the decision accepted the assumption that it was. And of course, many of the big scientists who developed the atom bomb, including Oppenheimer, would eventually reconsider. Some had begun thinking, even before the first bomb was dropped, about how to manage the political and social implications of the technology that they had brought to life. Many would work to promote the cause of international control over nuclear technology after the war, recognizing that what big science had unleashed could be managed safely only through a new conception of geopolitics and a new style of diplomacy. Many others would work to develop nuclear power and other peaceful technologies, perhaps in the hopes of expiating the moral qualms that Hiroshima and Nagasaki had brought them to. But Ernest Lawrence himself was not among them. Introspection was not his strong suit, and when his old friend Robert Oppenheimer declared that through the atomic bomb program, physicists had come to no sin, Lawrence responded quite angrily that nothing about his work had brought him to no sin. And that was still true much after the war when he became the nation's leading scientific promoter of the hydrogen bomb, a weapon that many of his own colleagues from the Manhattan Project viewed as a genocidal device and that even the Pentagon acknowledged could never be used in a military campaign only as a weapon of psychological terror. Lawrence never apologized for his work on the H-bomb either, even when he was accused of using the program to expand his own empire by building an H-bomb lab in the farm community of Livermore, what we now know of as Lawrence Livermore National Lab. To him, both bomb programs were necessary for national security, and he never looked back. But because he died in 1958, we don't know what he would have made of the nuclear world that big science had helped create. His widow, Molly, thought he would have been aghast at the scale of nuclear proliferation. And in the eight, 1980s, in fact, she was so appalled at Livermore's, Livermore's role in the arms race that she petitioned Congress to take her husband's name off the laboratory that he had founded. Well, Congress turned her down, and to this day, it's known as the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. But what we can say, looking back, is that the history of big science tells us that science itself can't be seen as good or bad. We can only render judgment on what humankind makes of it. Lawrence's new paradigm of scientific research has given us knowledge about the natural world that his own contemporaries barely guessed at. It's given us isotopes and diagnostic techniques that still save lives. It put men on the moon and allowed us to explore the outermost planets and peer deeply into the subatomic world. It may provide us with weapons against climate change, even as it's given us the tools to destroy ourselves too. As Raymond Fosdick, the head of the Rockefeller Foundation in the 1940s and one of Lawrence's most important financial patrons put it, the mighty imperative of our time is not to curb science, but to stop conflict. Science must help us to find the answer, but the decision lies with ourselves. Now, 
just in closing, I'd like to leave you with one last subject to debate, and that's whether after 70 years we may have reached the political and economic limits of big science. The reason that the Large Hadron Collider under the, the, the landscape of France and Switzerland is the biggest accelerator in the world today is that the United States abandoned its own project, the superconducting supercollider in the 1990s, mostly because its budget had grown so huge. And at that point, we had already spent $2 billion on it. Almost since the beginning, the cost of big science has prompted its critics to ask whether it can get too expensive, whether it leads us to value monumental scientific efforts more than programs that may have more direct relevance to our daily lives, like ending poverty or hunger. Big science has helped make our universities great, but it also has turned our professors into administrators, housekeepers, and publicists all for the cause of raising more money to make science even bigger. Now that said, one thing I think we can be confident of is that the human thirst for knowledge is never quenched. And if we want an illustration of that, let's just consider the excitement that's felt not only by scientists but laymen uh, about the, the extraordinary photos of Pluto that came last week from the New Horizons spacecraft after its nine-year voyage to the absolute limits of the solar system. This shows us that, that, that the impetus behind big science will always be with us, and what we really need to do is figure out how to marshal that impetus and get what we want. And with that, I thank you, and... I'm ready to take questions. How do you think uh, in life science, it's just, uh, you may remember you, you did an article about my wife and I in the LA Times a few months ago about the affordable care act. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. One of the cases, Tim and Angie, we're over here from Maryland working out here in Southern California. Oh, sure. Doing some of my own science. And, you got rid of light scattering detection, but uh, I always talk to my clients and friends and say it's like science. It's an unlimited potential, you know, through uh, curing cancers. So understanding, you know, DNA and microbial <coughs> stuff, and there's all these moral issues with that. You know, looking at well, that's that's DNA quite true. Yes, where people they can look at their DNA and they can predict you you have a predisposition to a certain disease. So. What are the moral issues of that? Well, I think when you talk about genomic research, there are a lot of moral issues, um, you know, from designer babies to how much should we know to how much should we tell people um, about their genomes when we don't really know all the answers and and it can be a moving target. Uh, So I I think we grapple with these questions in almost every science. Um, How much do we want to spend? How much do we think we can learn? And how confident are we that we we are using our resources properly and that we are asking the right questions and and knowing what to do with the answers? So... um, uh, you know, as I said, the Human Genome Project, which which really launched this whole area, was a big science project, uh, and it was masterminded by Jim Watson, who is probably the closest thing to an Ernest Lawrence that we've had in the last 
20 years, an impresario, uh, a, a, um, an authoritative voice for science. We don't have a lot of those. And he, he really did start a great project and, re and brought it more or less to fruition. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're working on it, and they may very well be working on it at Lawrence Livermore Lab, where about half the budget is on projects that are, that are secret. So. Yeah. Yeah, I um, you mentioned Fosdick, and there was Carl Compton who talked about mm -hmm. the competitive element. Yes. And if you listen to today's news about UCSD versus USC over the rights, the property rights um, to Alzheimer's research. So we see this kind of thread that is still with us today about this competition within hard science, yes? Yes, well, as, as you pointed out, yes, Carl Compton, and his, Carl Compton was uh, in the 30s and 40s the president of MIT, um, a distinguished science scientist himself, and he expressed a lot of concerns over the, the financial demands, the economic demands of big science, and the competition that it was going to start among institutions to, to be the big science uh, representatives. Um, one of the... Uh, one of the phenomena that big science, I mean, it didn't necessarily launch, but it was consonant with this, was the business of patenting discoveries, trying to commercialize discoveries. Um, Lawrence was pushed very early on to patent the cyclotron by his financial backers at Research Corporation. And he resisted for, for the long time, but when they persuaded him that he needed to protect it from commercial exploitation, and he could do that while still allowing academic institutions to have a free license. He, he agreed, but he was never comfortable with patenting. But, of course, that was something that was coming on then. And, and the inflow of money that was made necessary and was also enabled by big science, I think it very quickly intensified that sort of competition among institutions and among scientists to find ways to, to make money, to make more money from what they were doing. Um, Lawrence was not innocent of this. Um, when, he, when he began to understand uh, at one period that, that foundation money for physics was going to be scarce, but foundation money for medical research was going to be abundant, he actually built and designed a cyclotron that was, um, that was, that was primed to, uh, to discover medical and biological isotopes, isotopes of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, because he knew that would enable him to get funding. So it wasn't really in contradiction with his main goals, but it was a way that, that he had of adjusting his program to, uh, for the interests of his, of his financial patrons. Uh, well, I, I don't know hardly, I know hardly anything about the uh, Iran program, but I just want to ask in your opinion, um, are, uh, are we, is it okay what they're, they're offering people, Iran, what they agreed to, um, to let them work on that much and no more? Well, I don't really, I don't really know uh, the details. I mean, I know what's been said, and I know what's been said by experts. And I think if you believe the experts, and I really don't have any reason uh, not to, um, the, the deal, um, the level of oversight that the Iranians will, will work under uh, pretty much assures that, 
that the uh, the nuclear research they do w will be oriented toward power or other peaceful uses, if if at all, and not toward uh, uh, the creation of nuclear weapons. So, and there's a distinction between what you have to do to create a power plant and what you have to do to create a bomb. And I think the experts seem to, seem to say that uh, they will be able to. Uh, to see that distinction and what Iran is up to over the next 10 or 15 years. This is more of a cultural question. I was struck by two things in the space program. I remember I was at UCLA listening to some lecture, and some woman talked about how everyone working in the NASA space program was into Bible study and all this kind of stuff, which, I, which suddenly put a light on the kind of research that they might be doing. It, it suddenly illuminated for me that possibly there was a culture working in the space program. And this culture could be shaping the science that was emerging. So, so the light bulb went off back in the 90s when I heard this rumor. I don't know what the fact is. And then I found I caught the ear of a JPL guy. And in layman's language, he evidently was responsible for steering the Mars rover. This was his job. Okay. And so because he was going to appear on the Discovery Channel and seem challenged by my layman, uh, questioning and how to explain it in ways that I would understand it. We carried on this really interesting conversation. And he doesn't worry about climate change because he articulated to me that he views the fossil fuel and as just a blip in the screen of history of all the potential fuel sources that may emerge into the universe from his perspective as a commander of the Mars rover steering apparatus. So you know, he said this to me and I thought, God, that sounds right. You know, I thought, what, what are we worrying about all this stuff? You know, we're just a blip in history, and we're going to find these fuels. We're going to find these fuels, these clean fuels, and we're going to go on to a larger gap in history. And do we not have the correct perspective in viewing this question? And I'm not politically oriented this direction at all, but it's suddenly, just like the idea in the 90s, that a bunch of men who are involved in Bible study could be right. Well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll make... I'll make a couple of observations. First of all, I've, I've known a lot of engineers and scientists and computer scientists uh, over the years, and uh, spirituality is not, uh, you know, that sort of study and spirituality is not mutually exclusive. I mean, I've known very many scientists who rigorous uh, standards for scientific inquiry but go to church and and believe in God and, and what have you. And certainly we've seen, I, I think we've been cases of astronauts who've come back from going into outer space and have come back with, with real feelings of spirituality. Edgar Mitchell, who was an astronaut, um, I think went beyond spirituality into even parapsychology, but uh, but you find that. Now, you know, in terms of... I just so interesting what you're saying about the parapsychology. Just Well, you should look up Edgar Mitchell. Um, uh, and see what uh, what his career. I think he's passed away. But um, the, the other thing, in, in terms of you know where we are in the great continuum of um, you know of time and space, um, it reminds me a little bit of the remark that the economist John Maynard Keynes said when he was asked one day um, by a questioner, you know, what he saw for the for the long term um, or the long run, and his answer was. Well, in the long run, we are all dead. Um, and, um, you know, I think science really has to deal with um, uh, with issues that are in the near term, the medium term, and the long term. 
And um, the fact that, you know, we occupy this blip in time doesn't mean that we will get, you know, get there if we don't deal with the, the immediate crises we have, including uh, climate change caused by carbon fuels. I am very aware of it, and in fact, it's the topic of my column on th this coming Sunday. So. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted your opinion because uh, both my wife and I are teachers, and it just seemed like the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s were very few kids wanting to be mathematicians, scientists, and I think this whole thing, because I work for the Unified Institute, just changed that. So, what is your comment? Because I'm sure Ron would be happy. Well, I, you know, I think, um, I mean, the conclusion that I've come to in doing the research for the column that you'll see a few days from now, if you, uh, if you pick up the paper or go online, um, is that there's, there's a constant boom and bust of, in interest among students in science and engineering and technology and math. It, it comes and it goes. Um, it has... Sometimes it's associated with a great high-profile high achievement in science. Um, right after the war, after uh, the bombings uh, of Japan, scientists came out of the war with a great reputation, a glowing reputation, as these are the people who helped end the war. Uh, that didn't last very long because it can't, you know. I mean, science and scientists can't really shoulder that sort of, uh, that sort of admiration for very long. Um, President Obama in 2010 gave a speech in which he, he spoke out for more STEM studies in high school and, uh, and college, and he made the remark that um, this is our generation's Sputnik moment. And of course, he was alluding to 1957 when you know, America woke up to discover a Russian satellite orbiting overhead. And that created real fear among the public and among policymakers that America was falling behind in technical and scientific know-how. So a whole generation of, of young people went into science and physics and engineering because they were told, you are our future, you need to hold up, you need to keep us in the forefront. Um, and what I found was by 1970, in the mid-1970s, when this generation had gone through its university training and, it, and gotten its doctorates and gone into postdocs, there were no more jobs because demand for them had ebbed. And that's what happens over and over again. So uh, I think when you really look at the numbers, you will find that the, the level of interest of high school students um, and university students going into science and technology never really actually changes. It's always about 30%. And, and that's where we are. What changes is we have this ebb and flow of panic over whether, uh, whether we are about to be overrun, whether it's by the Soviets or the Chinese or the Indians or wh whoever. And I, I think we're experiencing that at the moment. But it's, you know, I, I think we have to, you know, not overstate the, the case and not panic too much. Um, you were supposed to talk about the military industrial complex too and if you'd like yeah <laughs> sure uh, would that mean that there's uh, corruption in there and uh, that the people who from the military are also heads of the corporations 
And what, what about the universities? And, um, well, I, I think there's, it, it depends on how you define corruption. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's on the take. Uh, I think what Eisenhower was concerned about when he uh, made his famous speech uh, as he was leaving the presidency about uh, the dangers of the military-industrial complex was that um, uh, industry had gotten involved in science even before World War II, but of course uh, it, its role in big science really grew during the war. I mean, you know, Oak Ridge was designed and overseen by Ernest Lawrence, but it was built, the plant was actually built by a subsidiary of Eastman Kodak. Uh, DuPont built Hanford, which manufactured the plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb. So you always had, uh, America always had this tradition of turning over the actual nuts and bolts of big science to to industry. Uh, what Eisenhower saw, and, and I think the trend that really began during the war under Lawrence, was that um, uh, the, mil the military and industry were beginning to see that they had shared interests in pushing all of this ahead. Uh, now, you could say that that, that corrupted um, the military and industrial role in terms of its relationship with the public interest, but, you know, I, I think that requires, you know, some deep analysis to make that case. But on the surface, certainly it's something that Eisenhower saw developing, that uh, that military programs were, were developing and were being pushed ahead based almost as much, if not more, on the interests of the industries that were going to be the contractors as they were by military needs. And, and there was a symbiotic relationship that was, that was creating this, um, this uh, feedback loop. Um, and I think, in fact, if you go back and you read Eisenhower's speech, you really do recognize a lot about today's world uh, in what he talked about, and I think it was 1956 or 58, um, so, uh, you know, is that corruption? Well, it corrupts something. It's not, you know, it's not financial corruption necessarily, but it's certainly uh, the, the, the development of the interests of the military and, and industry in ways that, that may not have happened if they were kept much more independent of each other. Well, uh, you may be right. Um, that is the world we live in. Uh, other questions? Okay, well, once again, I thank you for coming, and thanks for listening and, and asking. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.